So we are in 2 Corinthians tonight. We're picking up with chapter 1, verse 12. And we'll go through the end of the chapter. Um, we, last week we talked about how 2 Corinthians was a letter Paul probably never thought he'd have to write. He wrote 1 Corinthians to a church that had a, a number of issues, and I'm sure being an apostle like he was, being used to having his word taken and obeyed by people, he just thought, well, okay, I've solved all their problems and now they're straightened out. But far from it, he, had, uh, he heard from others that there were some hard feelings. He made a visit to that church and it was not good and then sent them what he calls in this letter a painful letter, which we don't have anymore. Um, and then here's from Titus, his partner in ministry, that things are a little better, but he still feels that he has to address what happened and what's going on in the church because he is a pastor and he cares. I cannot imagine being Paul from many perspectives. Number one, I'm not, I don't have that gift, that calling to go into places where their gospel's never been heard and plant churches from scratch. I have all the respect in the world for people who have that gift and that calling. I do not. Um, I, you know, Paul says, I'm, I, I, it's my goal never to build on someone else's foundation. Well, that's all I do is build on the foundation of others like Cliff Harrington and people like that. Um, I also have all the respect in, in Paul, for Paul in he had, he had responsibility for all, a bunch of churches at the same time. Whereas I have responsibility for one. And that's plenty for me. That's all I can handle. So I don't know how he did it. God gave him grace. When I was nine years old, I signed up for Little League Baseball. And that was the first time I'd ever played a, an organized sports, an organized sport. And I remember my dad sitting me down and saying, listen, Jeff, I'm glad you're playing. But you need to know that once you join a team, you cannot quit. Even if you don't like it. Even if you're not having fun, you've made a commitment and you need to stick with it, at least until the end of the season. And my team that drafted me in that Little League draft was the Astros. They lost every game. If I remember right, we had 18 games. We lost every single one. Uh, and I hope the Houston Astros do better than that this year. But, you know, the reason I, th I think Dad, in fact, I know, if I would have gotten discouraged and quit, Dad would have forgiven me. He still would have been my dad. But he was trying to make a point that you have to be faithful. You have to keep your promises. You have to fulfill your commitments. He was trying to teach me integrity at an early age. And that's an important lesson to learn. Is there anything more discouraging than when you put your trust in someone and they don't fulfill that trust? I mean, it's bad enough when it's a company you contract with. And they say, I heard about a, a, a member of our church this week who lost a bunch of their trees in the freeze. We did too. And uh, we didn't get the warranty on those trees. So we knew there's no, play, no, they, no way they're replacing them. Well, this other church member said they had gotten the, the warranty and the company told them, no, it doesn't cover that kind of thing. They were very angry, right? This company, in their view, had not fulfilled the promise. It's even more so when it's not a company, but a person, someone you trust a friend, a pastor, a family member. 
Paul is having to respond to an accusation of a lack of integrity. And this sounds minor, what I'm about to tell you, but to the Corinthians, it was big. He had told the Corinthians that he was going to come visit them on his way to Macedonia and then on his way back to Ephesus, but he had to change his plans. Unforeseen circumstances caused him to change his plans, and there were some in Corinth who accused him of lacking integrity. We, By the way, we're just getting this from the context of what Paul's responding to. And I can imagine that there were the people who were the loudest about this were just looking for a reason to be angry. Now, Christians never do that, do they? Um, Paul has to defend himself against this charge that he doesn't really care about them. So that's the context that these next verses are about. So let's begin with verse 12. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. As he says we, he's talking about himself and Timothy and the other people in his party, his uh, missionary party, his missionary group. He says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? It's kind of a confusing uh, sentence. The, the translators of this Bible are translating it directly from Greek, where it makes more sense than in English. What he's saying is, are we the, am I the kind of person who says yes to one person and no to the other about the same question? Am I two-faced? Is that what, is what he's saying? Am I, am I someone who doesn't stick by my word? His answer to that is in verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now let me, let me just stop there and say his basic argument is, trust me because I'm an apostle. I serve Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the one who does not lie. And if I were to lie, he would judge me for it as an apostle. He would, you would know it by now because I would already be under his judgment. Paul is essentially saying, trust me, I'm an apostle. No one else gets to say that. I don't get to say that. Nobody else on this staff gets to say that. I, I want to make this clear because we've seen too many examples recently and in years past of ministers who had earned great respect and trust, and it turns out they were engaged in awful behaviors. They did things that hurt their families, that hurt their churches. I want to make it clear that nowhere in Scripture does it say that a church has to trust what their pastor says because he is their pastor. The office of pastor is worthy of respect and support and, and encouragement. It is not worthy of unconditional trust because the pastor is just a man. And so I want you to hear this, and I'll say this to the bigger congregation from time to time too. If you ever see something in me that you think is a little sketchy or suspicious or something that makes you think well, maybe he's on the wrong track or he's headed down the wrong road, please come talk to me personally. That's the first step, right? 
Because it could be your misunderstanding and we need to get things straight. It could be that I am headed down the wrong road and you're rescuing me from danger. It could be that I've already transgressed and it needs to be exposed so the church doesn't get further damaged. But the point is, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here because I think it's important. The point is, pastors are not worthy of absolute trust. Apostles were because they were called by Jesus to essentially write the scriptures, found the church. That is a different office than the office of pastor. So Paul is making his self-defense, but typical Paul, he can't help going from that to a theological point about God himself. So he says, you know, we can't be people who talk out of both sides of our mouths because we serve Jesus and his yes is yes and his no is no. And that reminds him of how faithful God is. So that leads to the rest of what we're going to talk about. Uh, again, verse 26, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So again, in verse 23 and 24, he comes back to his point. I promise you, God is my witness. I, I have a good reason for not coming to you. I don't, we don't know exactly what he means when he says it was to spare you that we refrain from coming. Again, he's saying, trust me, God is my witness that I am in the right here. I did not defraud you. I did not lie to you. But what I want us to focus on is, is what he says in verses 20 through 22, the bigger theological point he's making. So what is he saying about God? What is he saying about the faithfulness of God? If he's saying, trust me, we can trust God all the more. Because even though Paul was an apostle, he was still a man. God is not. What can we count on from God according to these verses? Number one, we can count on Him to keep His promises. I love that statement. In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. What does that mean? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises God has ever made. In Paul's day, it's talking about the promises of the Old Testament. Think about some of the promises you can remember in the Old Testament. When God comes to Abraham... Old Abraham and never had a child. And God says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And those who bless you will be blessed. And those who curse you will be cursed. And then he says, and all nations in the world will be blessed by you. Well, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. It's not just the Jewish people. It is in Jesus ultimately who blesses all nations. When God is speaking to David, after David has come to Nathan the prophet and said, hey, ask God for me if it's okay if I build a temple to the Lord. And Nathan comes back and says, God says, no, that's going to be something your son will do. But in the meantime, I'm going to make you a promise. And that is that your kingdom will never fail. You will have a son who will reign eternally. That fulfillment is in Jesus. Jesus is the king, the son of David, who will reign for all time. Uh, when God is talking to Isaiah and says, I'm going to be a suffering servant who will bear the sins of the people. He's talking about Jesus. In Isaiah 9, when he says a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He's talking about Jesus. 
when Jeremiah is promised by God that someday there's going to be a new covenant. And so you won't have to know the word of God because the word of God will be written upon your heart and he will be your God and you will be his people. That is fulfilled in Jesus. When Ezekiel sees his vision of the dry bones in the valley and all of a sudden they all come together and they stand up and they're living again, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us new life. When Hosea tells us about his faithless bride, Gomer, and he purchases her back in spite of her adultery. He purchases her back and makes her his own again in spite of her adultery. And he says, this is how God loves you. That's fulfilled in Jesus, who died for us while we were yet sinners. When Amos says, someday justice is going to roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, that's fulfilled in Jesus. You see the point. All the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Him. And when He says, through Him we utter our Amen. See, you can take that in two ways, and I think both of them are true. In one sense, that we as Christians, whenever we quote the Word of God to somebody else, the yes of Jesus is what we say Amen to. You know, Jesus says, I will be with you always until the end of the world. We say Amen to that. Jesus says, I am, I am going there to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be. We say amen to that. See, Jesus says yes, we say amen. The other, the other part of that is this idea that we pray in the name of Jesus because he's the fulfillment of all God's promises. And, and I, I was well into adulthood before I came to understand this. My mom taught me. Whenever you pray, you say, in the name of Jesus, amen. And I sort of thought that was kind of the formula for prayer. The prayer wasn't valid unless you said that. It was almost a magical formula. In fact, if I was praying in bed at night and I fell asleep, if I'd wake up and think, well, I don't, I don't know if I said amen or not, I would say, in Christ's name, amen. Yeah, I didn't want to leave God there hanging on his end of the line, right? Why does Jesus teach us to pray in his name? It's not a magic formula. It doesn't mean that anything you ask in Jesus' name is automatically given. Praying in Jesus' name is an acknowledgement. It's our way of saying, I would have no right, Lord, to ask you for this if not for Jesus. You are, Jesus is your yes to me. Jesus is the reason I have access to you. So every time we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray amen. It is a reminder to us, not to God. He doesn't need to be reminded. It's a reminder to us. It's a humbling for us. The reason we can pray is because of him. He keeps his promises. Second thing Paul says is he makes us stand firm in Christ. In verse 20, uh, when he says, oh, in verse 21, that is, it is he who establishes us in Christ. That word establish is an economic term. It's a term that a merchant would use to say, I guarantee the product you paid for will be delivered. You go into this merchant's office and you pay for uh, uh, some pottery that hasn't been made yet, or you pay for workers to come out to your house and sow your fields, or whatever the case may be. The, the establishment is saying, it is my word guarantees this job will be done. And that's what God is saying here. Another way to look at it, I, I've done a lot of moving in my life, both myself and other people. And in Texas, moving usually means you borrow pickup trucks and you put your stuff in the pickup truck. 
My dad told a story once of, of helping someone move and they had put an upright piano in the back of a pickup truck and just figured, you know, that's, this is so heavy, it's, it's fine. And they were driving slow and dad said, I'm driving behind that car and they weren't even going fast, they didn't even hit a big bump. All of a sudden that piano just leaped over the side of the pickup and landed upside down in the street. He said, you know, you can't do that, you have to be careful. Well, to me, this establishment is like a man who puts a piano or a refrigerator or some other big item in the back of a truck and then just straps it down with every kind of bungee cord and, and nylon strap that you can name and rope, and he ties it so tightly it won't even budge, and he says, that ain't going anywhere. That's what God says. You're not going anywhere. You are mine. I will, I will make you stand firm in me. I have established you. And notice in that sentence, he says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal on us and has given us his spirit. You notice all the other three are in the past tense. Establishes is in the present tense. And don't take that so literally as if to say God has to sit there consciously holding you or you'll get away. But what it means is our salvation isn't a finish a finished act. Every day we're being saved. Yes, we are justified before God the day we believe, but our salvation is ongoing. It's, it's something that doesn't end. God doesn't stop saving, doesn't stop redeeming us until we finally come home. Notice also that we don't establish ourselves. It doesn't say you have established yourself in Christ. No, God establishes us. And that's a wonderful thing to know. God has again, bound us so closely to him that we cannot fall. As Jesus says in John, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And that's very, very good news. And then it says he anointed us. Anointed. Interestingly, the word anointed is from the same word we get Messiah. The word Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, means anointed one. On the day Jesus came home to Nazareth after beginning his ministry, he read in the synagogue, and it was open to the scroll of Isaiah. He found chapter 61, verses 1 through 4, which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So he didn't read all of that, but he read the first two verses. That chapter goes on and just talks about, here's what the Messiah has come to do, to rebuild our world and to reshape it, to redeem it. And he said, this is fulfilled in, in your hearing. In other words, I'm the one who's going to fulfill this. He was declaring himself the Messiah, the fulfillment of all that prophecy. And I think we all understand that. But then listen to John 14, 12. John 14, 12 is one of those, if you really get it, you'll just, it'll, it'll cause you to catch your breath. John 14, 12, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. In other words, Jesus started the work, 
and he's handed it off to us, and we'll do even greater things. Does that mean that you know, Jesus raised, as far as we know, three people from the dead? Well, I'll, I'll raise four. No, that, that's not what that means. Jesus walked on water. Well, then I'll walk on an ocean. That's not what it means. What it means is that we collectively, as the body of Christ, are able to reach the world and help more people than Jesus in his earthly form could because he was just one person. With all his power, he could only be in one place at one time. But the church, the body of Christ, can do greater things than the earthly Jesus did because we're all over the world speaking in every language. People of all kinds of skills and, and spiritual giftedness. What I'm trying to get at is he has anointed us, I think means just as God anointed Jesus to come into the world and change history, he has anointed us as his people to carry on his work. And the same power that enabled Jesus to walk on water and feed 5,000 and raise the dead is the same power that God gives us to establish these transforming relationships in our community to help people in their needs, to preach the truth, and to do all the things that our society needs. In other words, he has given us all the equipment we need to change the world through Christ. He makes us stand firm, he anointed us, and then it says he puts his seal on us, his seal. In the ancient world, a seal was uh, something that a king or a wealthy person had that he would, he, would, he would put wax to seal a letter and then he would put his unique seal on that letter in that wax. And that way when you got it in the mail, you didn't have to wonder whether John or, or Mary actually wrote this. You would look at the seal and go, okay, I know this is legitimate because only he has that seal. God put his seal on us to say, I'm marking you as my own. When uh, we were in college and Carrie and I, was Carrie and I were dating, I, I just I came to understand after about a year of, of dating this girl that I knew I needed to marry her. And that was a surprise to me. I did not, not expect to find my future wife at such a young age. But at that point, I knew I wanted to propose to her. Even though we were sophomores in college, no, juniors. We were juniors in college, and I knew there was no way her dad was going to let us get married until we were graduated. So that's over a year away. That's a year and a half. And yet, I went ahead. And besides which, I really couldn't afford a ring. But I did it anyway. You know why? Because at the time, not only was she attending school at a campus with 30,000 students, but she was attending a church with a college ministry of hundreds and I went there with her and I saw the way those other guys looked at her. And I said, I need a rock on that girl's finger. I need some kind of sign that she's mine. Not saying that's selfless of me. It was incredibly selfish. But uh, that's what God does for us, though. He marks us as his own. And the question is, for you, is do you wear that ring, that seal, proudly? Or do you try to hide it as much as possible? Do you want people to see that you belong to Jesus or would you rather they just treat you like, assume that you're like everyone else and your faith is just a private thing for you, something that's personal, something only your fellow church members know about. And then finally, he pays a deposit on us. That's another thing we can count on from God. As he says in verse 22, he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word also means deposit. It also means down payment. We're all familiar with deposits 
and down payments. Those are those unrefundable things that say, I'm in. This isn't the total amount. The total amount is coming, but I'm paying you enough that you know I'm not going to back out on this deal. And that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. God puts His Holy Spirit in us as if to say, this is my guarantee that you're mine, and it's also my guarantee that there's more coming. So I don't know how familiar you are with the, the Holy Spirit's activity in the lives of believers, but it's whenever you feel conviction of sin, whenever you are worshiping God and suddenly you feel transcended, you know, you feel in a sense that, okay, I am caught up in this emotion of being in God's presence and the problems of this world don't matter right now. Whenever you read the scriptures and suddenly you get an insight that you hadn't heard before or you're, you're hearing a sermon or a Bible study and you understand the word of God in a way that, that's never happened to you or when you feel joyful in times when you don't have any reason to be joyful other than I serve the Lord or when you overcome a sin that used to bother you, that used to be your stumbling block, and now you look back and go, you know, it's funny, I, I'm, I'm not stumbling in that way anymore. Or when you accomplish something you didn't think you could accomplish because, because God was with you. All those things are the, the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. And when you think about those, that's just the down payment. There's way more coming. As we grow in Christ, those things will start to happen for us more often. And the ultimate uh, completion of that payment is when we come to glory. Our salvation is complete and we're with Him all the time. And then all we do is righteous and all we do is victorious and all we do is joyful. The Spirit is a down payment. That's exciting news. There's more where that comes from. So the two questions we have to ask ourselves in light of this are, number one, am I the kind of person that demonstrates that faithfulness of God in the way that I live? Do others see that in me? There are plenty of Christians, sad to say, and you all know this is true, plenty of Christians who are good at being holy on Sundays and maybe Wednesday nights and the rest of the week they disgrace the name of Christ in the way they do their business and the way they treat others? Or are you the kind of person who keeps your promises, who follows the Holy Spirit and is a person of integrity that others can count on? That is a huge way we can witness for the Lord by being people of integrity, especially when it's hard. Are you that kind of person? Number two, am I excited about the things God has in store for me in the future? That's what we're talking about when we talk about hope. This idea of a down payment, does that excite you or do you kind of say, yeah, I'll see? Because the hope God wants us to walk in is something you desperately need in order to make it in a world that crushes your hope in everything else. Because if you put hope in your money, if you put hope in your family, if you put hope in your friends, if you put hope in anything else, it ultimately in one way or another will let you down. But if your hope is in this future in Christ, you cannot lose because the world can't take that away from you. Are you excited about the things God has in store for you in the future? Can you picture it enough so that it brings you excitement? Let me pray for us. Lord God, we're grateful that you are a faithful God. And thank you for showing us through these verses just some of the ways that you are. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would create in us hearts of integrity, 
hearts of purity, Lord, hearts of joy over the things that you have planned for us in the future. Help us to envision those and get excited about them. Lord, create in this church a factory for disciples. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his name. Amen.